Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Chapter 8 today, so we're just going to jump right in. Ask that you pray with me. Father, you are our heart's desire, and where that's not the case, I pray you would make that the case today. Now let your word as that two-edged sword do its slicing work, whether it's conviction, encouragement, whatever we need, Lord, only you can provide. And I pray you would do that today, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. The doctor said, if you're a believer in miracles, this would be one. The doctor was talking about Alcides Moreno. By the law of physics and medicine, Moreno should have died. You see, Moreno was a window washer in Manhattan. He rode platforms high in the sky to wash skyscrapers. And from there, he could look down below to see the pavement and the people who looked like ants. On December 7, 2007, a catastrophe struck the Moreno family. This sounds so unbelievable, I actually... You know, checked it on Google to make sure this was true. As he worked on the 47th story of a high-rise, his platform collapsed and he fell from the sky. If you're a believer in miracles, this would be one. No, Alcides didn't land on a passing airplane or catch his shirt on a flagpole or have anything else amazing happen like you see in the movies. He fell the entire 47 stories to the pavement below. But somehow he lived. For two weeks he hung on to life by a thread. Then on Christmas Day he spoke and reached out to touch his nurse's face. One month later the doctor said there was a good chance that he would even be able to walk again someday. If you're a believer in miracles, this would be another one. You see, in the beginning of the human race, Adam also fell from a great height. From sinless glory in the image of God, Adam rebelled against God and fell into sin and death and judgment. And in his terrible fall, he brought the whole human race with him. But as Lisa said, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, 
who left the heights of heaven and descended to earth to become a man. He lived a sinless life and then willingly went to the cross to die for the sins of Adam's fallen race. On the third day he rose again. And in his resurrection he made it possible for all to rise again and live forever. If you're a believer in miracles, that would definitely be one. And since none of us are without sin this morning, that is great news. That's part of what we're going to be looking at. Look at verse 44 with me. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their pleading and maintain their cause. The first issue we will deal with today is deployment. If the nation went to battle in obedience to God's instruction, only he could truly fight for them. Now, I like that Solomon was honest about the people's sin. He knew that they often were their own worst enemy, as we sometimes are. But he also knew that they had other enemies as well, enemies who would wage war against them. So the king prayed that when his people went out to battle and prayed for help from their God, he would step in and give them the victory. There is a notable example of this kind of military situation in 2 Kings chapter 3, where the king of Moab marches against Israel. And when he saw what the Moabites were doing, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, asked for the help of the Lord. And through a miraculous intervention in which the Moabites mistakenly thought they saw the blood of the Israelites running red in the water, God answered Jehoshaphat's prayers and delivered his people from their enemies. God loves to defend his people when they pray. Now, this does not mean that every army who prays to God will win the battle. The kind of warfare that Solomon had in mind was a holy war in which God explicitly sent his own people to fight the enemies of his kingdom. So Solomon's prayer has no direct application to the United States military or to the armed forces of any other earthly kingdom. We have to be careful that we don't read and apply the Bible through Americanized eyes. Now, where it does have direct application is to the church of God in its spiritual warfare with Satan and the powers of darkness. Today, we fight our own spiritual battles. But now, they're battles against temptation and battle for the souls of people who need to know Christ through prayer. And when we pray, God can ultimately win the victory. Verse 46, please. When they sin against you, for there is no person who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and turn them over to an enemy, so that they take them away, captive to the land of the enemy, distant or near. If they take it to heart in the land where they have been taken captive, and repent and implore your favor in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We have acted wickedly. 
If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you towards their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their pleading from heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their wrongdoings which they have committed against you. And make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, so that they will have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace, so that your eyes may be open to the pleading of your servant and to the pleading of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you have singled them out from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, just as you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, Lord God. Our next issue is defection. Besides its original significance as a warning for his own people, Solomon's prayer takes on a particular importance for the original audience. Remember that 1st and 2nd Kings was written for people who had lost the land in the very manner that Solomon has described. So for them, this petition acts as a call to repentance and a program for prayer. If the nation turned from truth and away from the false worship that they were doing that led them into captivity, only God could turn their hearts back to him. By disobeying God's law and imitating the sins of their idolatrous neighbors, the Jews were sinning against a flood of light. In the covenant, God repeatedly warned them that repeated and defiant rebellion would lead them into captivity. Now, several observations can be made about this prayer. First, the failure of his people was not a surprise to God. And neither is yours or mine. The prayer predicted the problem, namely, that there is no one who does not sin. But that does teach us that sin has the capacity to permeate everything his people did. And God did not take that sin lightly. Sin had certain consequences, and those consequences might be severe. Now, thankfully, God had prearranged the solution. The temple stood as a dramatic witness of the provision God had made in advance for the failures of his people. However, confession never must be superficial. You see, repentance involved not only the acknowledgement of sin, but the turning away from sin. And by the way, it is a sign of health to realize that we are sick. I love C.S. Lewis here. He writes, when a man is getting better, he still understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. But when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. So fortunately, the situation would never be hopeless because God was a God who would hear his people and would come to them if they would but pray to him. 
But better than that, he would not only hear, he would also forgive and restore. Now Solomon's last petition was probably the most important because it was a prayer for total forgiveness. Now once again, the king describes a situation when the people would be desperate for the help of their God. In fact, one commentator calls it Solomon's worst case scenario. Here's how the king began his final petition. He said, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of their enemy far off or near. Of course, this is exactly what happened. Actually, Solomon's if was really more like a when. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his last petition was a preview of Israel's future history. The people did sin against God, and God was angry with them, and he did give them to an enemy, and they were carried off to captivity. Solomon was praying in advance about the tragic events of 586 B.C. when Jerusalem and its temple was destroyed by the mighty armies of Nebuchadnezzar. And when God's people were carried off to Babylon for 70 long years of exile. Solomon's seven petitions cover almost everything that anyone could ever need. Even in the fallen and desperate world that we live in. Solomon prayed for deliverance from danger, provision for daily needs, and victory over formidable enemies. He prayed that even in the worst case scenario, that God would bring his people back home. He prayed for these people who were far away from God, and even for people who had never known God at all. But most of all, my friends, Solomon prayed for our biggest need, which is the forgiveness of our sins against a holy God. Everybody needs that prayer. We know this from the way that Solomon includes every one of us this morning. At the beginning of his final petition, the king made one little editorial comment that condemns the entire human race. And it is this. For there is none who does not sin. This had been the logical premise of Solomon's prayer from the very beginning. In his wisdom, the king knew the people well enough to know that everyone was a sinner, including those of us who belong to the people of God. So he prayed a sinner's prayer for the forgiveness of a merciful God. And amazingly, this morning, the Lord longs to forgive us. If you believe in miracles, that is definitely one. Whenever we are afflicted, we may pray to God to deliver us. You see, God knows what is really in our hearts. And if our repentance is sincere, He will forgive us of our sins and deliver us one way or the other from any disaster that befalls us. 
So that means we can still pray for God's help even when we are far away from Him. Even if you are captive to sin this morning. All you need to do is to turn to Christ who is the living temple of what we've been talking about. Who offered His own body as the atonement for our sins. When the worst case scenario becomes a scenario of our very lives, there is still a way back home to God for anyone who truly repents and trusts in Christ. Not only that, as we pray, we know that Jesus is also praying for us. As we have seen through 1 Kings, Jesus Christ is the greater than Solomon of the kingdom of God. So when we see Solomon praying, we should remember also that we too have a king who knows our weaknesses and is always praying for us. Jesus ever lives to intercede for people who are oppressed, who need justice, for people who are in spiritual danger and need deliverance, and for suffering people who need comfort. Jesus prays for God to protect us from our enemies, most notably the evil one. Most of all, though, he prays for people who sin and need a Savior. This is the best sinner's prayer of all. It is the one that Jesus prays for us, asking God to take the blood from his cross and use it to cover all of our sins. Look at verse 54 with me. When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and plea of the Lord, he stood up from the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel in accordance with everything that he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises which he promised through Moses his servant. May the Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, so that he may guide our hearts toward himself, to walk in all his ways and to keep all his commandments, his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. What follows in this section is a prayer on prayer. As Solomon began the prayer back in verse 22, he stood before the altar of the Lord with his hands spread out towards heaven. But by the end of the prayer, we find him kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven. Now clearly, this, this prayer was an outpouring of heart and emotions and not just a bunch of empty words. And by the way, this is the first time in Scripture we ever see someone kneeling in prayer. And while it is certainly more the posture of the heart rather than the posture of the body that matters, I believe it is also true that the posture of the body can often reflect the posture of the heart. Haven't you found when you are really pressed, you naturally find yourself on your knees or your face before the Lord. Solomon was so intense in the spirit, so concerned about the petitions he was raising to the Lord, that although the normal posture at that time was to stand, he found himself inevitably upon his knees with his hands lifted up 
a telling insight regarding the posture of his heart. First Chronicles 7 tells us that after he prayed this prayer, fire was sent from heaven to consume the sacrifices on the altar. That means Solomon literally prayed down fire from heaven. I believe one of the reasons for this was that there was already an intensity and a burning within his own heart as he prayed. Oh, that God would give us the ability to pray down fire from heaven. Would to God he would give us understanding so that we might be potent and powerful in our prayer lives as well. Verse 55 says, Solomon stood and blessed the assembly. As we've noted, perhaps Solomon wanted to give honor to God by kneeling in his presence. Maybe the burden of those seven long petitions for Israel's forgiveness had just forced him to his knees. In any case, he went from standing to kneeling to standing again. After spending time with the Lord, Solomon now stands before the people and begins to bless them reminding them that God had kept all of his promises completely. The same is still true this morning. Let me ask you a question. Can you remember what you were anxious about one year ago? How about three years ago? Yet during those times, many of us no doubt thought, God's promises for me that all things are going to work together for the good, His guarantee of blessing and provision, they're just not going to work for me this time. I just know it. But you know what? Many of the fears of my fears from last year never came to pass. And the ones that did come to pass, God strengthened me and walked me through them. So why should we lose sleep over any situation when the Lord always keeps all of His promises without exception? D.L. Moody said, God has never made a promise that was too good to be true. Solomon also asked in verse 58 for God to help him and his people to have hearts that were inclined to the Lord and eager to obey all of His commandments. Now, he knew the book of Deuteronomy, and he may have had Deuteronomy 5.29 in mind, which says, this is God speaking, all that they had such a heart in them, that they would always fear me and keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and their children forever. Solomon admonished the people to have sincere hearts, and to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And as Solomon reviewed the history of the Jewish nation, his conclusion was that the promises of God had never failed. Not even once. God's people had failed the Lord, but the Lord had never failed them. Look at verse 59. And may these words of mine, with which I have implored the favor of the Lord, be near to the Lord, our God, day and night, 
so that he will maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. Your hearts, therefore, should be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as it is this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. And Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the courtyard that was in front of the house of the Lord, because there he offered the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat of the peace offerings. For the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offering, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. So Solomon held the feast at that time, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, for seven days and seven more days, that is, fourteen days. On the eighth day he dismissed the people, and they blessed the king. Then they went to their tents, joyful and with happy hearts, for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant, and to Israel his people." Most people have strong opinions about the type of blessings that they want from God. We have a long list of things that we would like God to do for us, and sometimes we're quick to let him know when he doesn't deliver. If we are not careful, we can be all about ratify, satisfy, and gratify. What do I mean? We can want God to ratify our plans, satisfy our desires, and gratify all our pleasures. But really, the problem is not that we want too much from God, but that we want too many of the wrong things, and not nearly enough of the best that God wants to give us. On verse 59, Solomon asks for God's help as each day requires. This is a daily prayer for the daily needs of the people of God. Every day we need God to be with us through all the trials and the triumphs of life. Every day we need Him to incline His heart towards us. Otherwise, we will wander away. How does that hymn go? Prone to wander, Lord I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Every day we need him to hear our prayers and answer them for the sake of his glory in this world. These are the recommended daily requirements for the Christian life, which is God's abiding presence, the sanctifying spirit, and the listening ear of the God who deserves all the glory. In verse 61, Solomon prays that their hearts would be totally committed to the Lord. Notice where this kind of obedience begins. According to Solomon, it starts on the inside with a heart that is committed to keeping God's commandments. Then it works its way out into the way that we actually live our lives. What we need, therefore, is a change of heart 
that only the Holy Spirit can bring us as he inclines us in God's direction. To say the same thing in another way, we can keep the promises or the commands of verse 61 only if God answers the prayer of verse 59 and turns our hearts toward him. Really, Christianity can be condensed into just four words. Admit, submit, commit, and transmit. What is amazing here, though, is the sheer number of sacrifices that was offered. Earlier we were told that when the Ark of the Covenant was first brought up into the temple, Solomon sacrificed countless sheep and oxen. We are told in verse 63 that 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep were sacrificed. Not only was that expensive, but it required an incredible amount of effort and energy. But it was a delight to the Lord. Now we all know that we no longer, as New Testament believers, have to offer sheep. Hebrews 13.15 says, We are instead to offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. When I read that, I thought, I have to wonder, what if all the praises that we offer to the Lord were also recorded in Scripture? Would it be an impressive figure like this? Or would it be embarrassingly small? Good news is, we can begin to fix that this very morning. Let us start by joyfully responding to the peacemaking grace of Jesus Christ with sacrifices of our own. We do not sacrifice animals like the Israelites did, but we should give him the first and the best of everything we have by dedicating ourselves to his service. What sacrifice is God calling you this morning to make for his kingdom? Now, truth be told, we would rather not offer any sacrifices at all. Instead, we prefer the approach taken in a magazine advertisement that promised worship without sacrifice. Now, the ad was for a cosmetic described as a moisturizing, long-lasting, bronzing powder. In other words, the product would make a woman look like she had had a tan without spending any time in the sun. It was worship without sacrifice. Let me tell us this morning. As far as the Bible is concerned, there is no worship without sacrifice. More than that, there would be no worship at all unless Jesus had made the ultimate sacrifice of his broken body and crucified blood. But even the worship we offer God in response demands sacrifice, such as the sacrifice of our time, our money, our dreams, our ambitions, our thoughts, our words and actions, and who knows, perhaps one day, maybe even our very lives. Just know there is no worship without sacrifice. Now, the geographic references in these verses may be unfamiliar to most Bible readers today, but they indicate that the whole nation of Israel celebrated this feast. 
Hamath and the brook of Egypt were the extreme boundaries of Solomon's kingdom. That means that everyone from north to south was in attendance. To put it in an American frame of reference, it would be like saying that everyone from Alaska to the Everglades met in Washington, D.C. So after spending some time dedicating the temple to the Lord and offering sacrifices unto him, what happened? It says the people went away joyful and glad. That's not surprising. For whenever we truly have an experience with the Lord, we will experience the joy of the Lord. They blessed the king for the honor he gave to God in building a holy temple for worship. At this time, Solomon was the joy of his people. Now we have a similar yet greater, as I have said, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The praise we offer to God is centered on our King. Jesus Christ, both in His glory as a Son of God and on His salvation through the cross and the empty tomb. Now that joyful worship is not just for Sundays in church, but for every day of the week, and like them, every place that we go. Just as the Israelites there went home praising their God and their King, we too are called to take the joy of Christ with us from this building wherever we go. But to do that, we must stay in prayer and keep our hearts turned toward Him as He guides us home. Otherwise, there can, can be times when we can temporarily shipwreck our faith. To finish up this morning, in 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another nautical tragedy. In January of that year, thick fog off the, in thick fog off the Virginia coast, the steamship Monroe was ran by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters of the Atlantic that day. Captain Edward Johnson was grilled on the stand for more than five hours. During cross-examination, it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. Now, he said that the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship, and that it was the custom of the pilots in that day to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he had been captain of the Monroe. The faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. The realization partly explains a heart-rending picture recorded by a newspaper when it recorded that later the two captains met, clasped hands, and sobbed on each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of just a little misorientation. The reminder for us is this. If the heart is like a compass, then we need to repeatedly 
daily, even hourly, calibrate our hearts, always turning them to be directed by our Creator, who is the true magnetic north. Let us pray. And Father, that is our prayer this morning. It is so easy in this world that has voices coming to us from every direction, wanting our attention to slowly begin to veer off the straight and narrow. One degree doesn't seem like very much at the time. Then you look back and you see what kind of disaster that has brought. So as a warning this morning, Lord, I pray that we would all recalibrate ourselves and that you would open our eyes to where we truly are on our path with you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.